0: Hi, Tobias Carlisle here. I've launched a new firm called Acquirer's Funds. We implement the Acquirer's multiple in a highly liquid, tax efficient, and capital efficient way. If you'd like to learn more, go to acquirersfunds.com. Oh, this is the part
1: where you ask, are oh, you ready? Do it again, do it
0: again. Are you ready? <laughs> I am. All right, let's do it. <laughs> go. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlisle. This is the Acquirers Podcast. My special guest today is Perth Toll, who's the founder of Life and Liberty Indexes. It's the home of the Freedom 100 Emerging Markets Index, which is now uh, an ETF with the ticker FRDM. I'm going to be talking to Perth right after this. Go. Ah! Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, he will not discuss any of the Acquire's Funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Acquire's Funds or affiliates. For more information, visit Acquire'sFunds.com. Hi Perth, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm, I'm very well, thank you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: My absolute pleasure. What is freedom weighting?
1: Yeah, so freedom weighting is an alternative weighting method that we are using in emerging markets, um, alternative to uh, market cap weighting, the the emerging markets. So in emerging markets indices, mostly what we see uh, or what we saw before was um, market cap weighting, which led to a lot of... Country and regional concentrations. So, for example, um, if you look at any of the the largest emerging market uh, UTS like uh, EEM or IEMG or BWO, which are based on MSCI and FTSE indices, they all have a very large concentration in China and the China region. So, in China, you'll see about 35% allocation. China region, if you include Taiwan, Hong Kong, and South Korea, you'll see more than 50% allocation in your emerging markets index. And uh, you'll see 70% in Asia in general in these indices. Uh, even the, the ESG, emerging markets indices, will have similar allocations. So uh, we, uh, having come from China myself and not wanting to invest um, that, quite that much into um, a country that I, I find a little more risky um, and a little more uh, questionable as far as human rights practices and so forth... Um, I created the the freedom weighted uh, methodology for weighting emerging markets to kind of give the the freer countries a higher weight in the index. So the idea there is that freer countries perform better, more sustainably, and they um, they use their human and economic capital more efficiently and they recover faster from drawdowns because they're more innovative and flexible to market trends. So you know, we, we have very large concentrations still in South Korea and Taiwan, which is a happy accident. That gives us still high um, correlation to the benchmark indices, because those are highly correlated to China. Uh, but we also have very high allocations in the freer, smaller countries like Chile and Poland. These are countries that are large enough to, to trade in an ETF with no issues. Um, and they're very free, but they have about two percent. In the other benchmark indices. So, you know, in the other end, benchmark indices, I feel like we are missing out on some of these freer, more higher potential markets.
0: H- and how are, you, how are you defining freedom?
1: So, we're defining freedom um, using, or we basically use a freedom score given to us by our think tank partners. Uh, so, we're using the Fraser Institute, Cato Institute, and Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom. Um, combined effort to, to, to basically um, categorize freedoms into 79 variables and come up with a country score for each country. So there's a combined country score that combines 79 third-party variables as far as um, quantitative freedom variables. So I categorize them into three categories, the rights to life, the rights to liberty, and the rights to property. And that's where the name of my company comes from. So the rights to life are things like terrorism, trafficking, internal organized conflict, like extended wars in the country and so forth. Um, The rights to liberty are things like rule of law. Um, A lot of people don't invest in emerging markets because of the lack of rule of law. So we uh, are hoping to provide a solution um, through through these methods. Um, So rule of law, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of the media, um, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly, those types of freedoms. And then the rights to property are your economic freedoms. So things like taxation, uh, private property rights, um, you know, contract laws, uh, business regulations, freedom to trade internationally and sound money.
0: Uh, when you're uh, constructing these indexes, you you're talking about uh, the, the the scores but I've seen you discuss this uh, on Twitter uh, there's a distinction between absolute and relative freedom and can you can you just talk a little bit about that and how that flows into the index
1: Yeah so we use an absolute freedom level relative to peers So basically we look at the the absolute level of freedom versus the movement or the momentum of freedom in a country so for example Argentina, is a country that uh, has great potential for for improvement. And we've seen um, some hope for that in the near past. But uh, we don't put them in the index just because they have a high improvement potential or high um, trajectory for freedom. We, We only take actually the freest countries. So the absolute level of freedom is what we look at. But we also don't draw a line in the sand as to, okay, you have to be above this certain score or this certain level to be in the index. We just look at them relative to their peers. So uh, the 10 countries that end up being included in the index are the 10 freest countries relative to the others. So as long as, you know, for example, Philippines is in the index currently, smaller allocation, but obviously some human rights issues there. They have higher economic freedom than, than human freedom, but there's definitely some issues. Um, but they ranked higher than, for example, just slightly higher than Brazil. So in the, in, in the last reallocation, the rebalance, they were added and Brazil was dropped. So it's whether your absolute freedom score is higher than others, um, in other emerging markets. Um, and that's what
0: we look at. Does Turkey make it into that, uh, into your top 10?
1: No. So Turkey is an interesting case. It was in the index when um, when we started calculating it live in 2017. And at the rebalance in 2018, we rebalanced the third Friday in January. So in January of 2018, um, Turkey triggered a, a rule in the methodology that had never been triggered before, which is the freedom momentum decline rule. So they had their freedom score declined too fast. And that got them kicked out of the index. So we do look at momentum on the downside as a sell discipline um, in cases like that where, where the freedom just declines extremely quickly. Um, so they were kicked out of the index as of January of 2018, and they haven't made it back since.
0: And when you're constructing the index, once you've identified the countries that you want to include, then you have to, you, you're identifying individual companies in each country and how do, you, how do you go about identifying which co- companies to include
1: yeah so so most of our analysis is on the country level um, it's, a, it's a macro approach and we're looking at top-down country level um, freedom scores the reason for that is governments are in the best position to uh, protect human rights and economic freedoms. Um, you put the same company in two different countries, for example, uh, let's say you put Nike in North Korea and Nike in South Korea. In one country, you're going to have you know, wealth creation and, and jobs and um, innovation and so forth. In the other country, you're going to have child labor and slavery and you know, all this other stuff. So it's not the companies themselves that determine the human freedoms that they enjoy in a country. But we do take the economic freedom theme all the way through to the security level by excluding state-owned enterprises. Which you know, is just taking that economic theme all the way through um, because the, we believe the more government interference, the less um, efficient a, a company is run. So we exclude state owned enterprises. What com- and we?
0: Sorry, keep going. Yeah,
1: no. Oh, and, and we, uh, we basically, to keep it tradable, take the 10 largest, most liquid stocks in each country minus state owned enterprises and we market cap weight within the countries
0: what what sort of companies do you tend to exclude that are state-owned? Is it banks and airlines and telecommunications? Do you know the sort of things that get kicked out?
1: Yeah, depends on the countries. So in Poland, there are a lot of banks that are state-owned that get kicked out. Um, in more South American countries or oil-rich countries, there's a lot of oil companies that would get kicked out. So it depends on the country. But mostly what I've seen are banks is the biggest thing.
0: So uh, you, I saw that you retweeted something uh, by Meb Faber, which I found really interesting. Meb puts all of his 401k money into emerging markets. And Meb's argument is it's 85% of the global population. It's 50%, 50% of global GDP, but it's only 15% by market cap. And then he says it's got better demographics, higher growth, and that cheaper valuation means that it's very attractive. So what's your attraction to emerging markets?
1: Well, uh, I, I first of all, I think Med, thank you, Med, for, for that tweet. Uh, I think that a lot of people struggle with how much to put into emerging markets, and um, I have a similar approach in my uh, retirement plans. But that's partly because of uh, I'm trying to make my product survive. So, so, um, so, so, I thank you, Med, for that. Shout out to him. Uh, as far as uh, why we started with emerging markets it's because in emerging markets there's a special opportunity um, to capture this freedom premium because there's such a huge discrepancy between freedom levels in these markets that you don't see in developed markets so you know in developed markets we're looking at what u.s canada japan germany these are all very free countries and they're very fairly homogenous as far as their freedom levels Um, but when you Get to the emerging markets, you see huge discrepancies. You've got countries like, you know, Taiwan and South Korea, Chile and Poland, which are very free. And then you have China, Russia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia with, you know, all the human rights abuses that have come out recently into the light. So this huge discrepancy in freedom levels is where we think the opportunity is.
0: Well, so, so that's, I guess that's that leads into my next question. Why is freedom so important in emerging markets? Because the dis- yeah. because the, the levels are so different but what why why, uh, why focus on the freer countries
1: yeah so uh, so I, I I was you know I'm have a background from China so I was born in, in Beijing and I came here to the United States when I was about nine um, so I grew up half in Beijing and half in in um, in the US uh, and when I was in Beijing I was very you know um, and, and you'll hear this from a lot of people that come out of their, As a child, I was, you know, I wore the red scarf. I was very like indoctrinated, you know, into the Communist Youth League and all of this stuff. And, you know, I believed everything they told me. Uh, And then having come to the U.S. and being exposed to freedom um, was obviously kind of life changing. And then after that, I went back and lived in Hong Kong um, after college for about a year. And um, there my eyes were open to how different my life would have been had I stayed in China. Um, and, and I realized the difference also between the mainland Chinese market and the Hong Kong market at the time. And I saw that that governance and policies um, have a huge impact on the growth of a country and its markets. So, um, you know, for example, I, I had a friend in Shanghai who we called her Maggie, uh, but she, she was my same age. I was 23 at the time. She was an extremely intelligent woman. She didn't exist on paper, so she has no birth certificates, no school records, no hospital records, no state benefits, um, because she was born a second child. So I'm a child of the one-child policy generation, and um, that policy completely changed the culture of my generation and how we think and uh, how how people, how my generation in China uh, really Live now in in our level of respect for individual freedoms and human rights and just the value of individual life. So yeah, so, so that had a, a huge impact on on why I uh, chose to do this.
0: So the 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 one child policy was that you were allowed to have a child, and there were there was some there are sort of top down macro statistics about the number of girls that are missing in China, uh, relative to what we know, the average, we should, there should be roughly equal numbers of, of girls and boys, but there, there are something like 30 million girls missing from those statistics. Is it that part of partially they just haven't been registered? Is that, that's the more hopeful outcome?
1: So, yeah, so I recently talked with Dan Crosby on his podcast about this and he raised that question. And so I went to, uh, Mei Fong, who is a writer, uh, and reported on this to see, uh, what the answer to that is? Are these 30 million women uh, are they missing, or, like from the registries, or are they literally gone? Um, and she said that if they were, so if they were just missing from being registered, um, when the one-child policy became a two-child policy, we should have seen an uptick in that, or we should have seen a, a you know, decrease in that number or more uh, women or girls being born. But we didn't actually see that. Uh, change since 2015. So, so the, the the official theory is that those are women who are actually missing from the population um, due to the one-child policy and the selective uh, births as a result of that. Um, just because in China, like my friend, her parents registered her brother for school and for existence, um, and she was one of the lucky ones. So, so by by that theory, um, she's not one of the Thirty million missing women. Yeah.
0: It must have an enormous impact on not just the economy, but just the uh, the uh, the culture of the country over that over that period of time.
1: Yeah, no, it really changed the culture of, of the whole generation. And, and now, even though that they've loosened the policy to allow two children, no one is having two children because everybody grew up as an only child. That's the culture now. Uh, there's no you know, huge value placed on a large family. Um, it's just not something that people really value now. So,
0: so besides uh, China, you, you also exclude Russia and Saudi Arabia. So, can you go through the reasons, perhaps, for Saudi Arabia?
1: Yeah. So, and, and that's a. I'm glad you brought this up because um, I don't actually exclude them. I just use the scores. So I can't game the system and say, oh, I don't like Saudi Arabia, so I'm going to kick them out. Because well, your they-
0: methodology excludes them, perhaps.
1: Uh, true. So my methodology takes the, uh, the freedom scores per country by Fraser Cato, and friedrich Naumann Foundation. And um, it, it runs the countries through an iterations. Uh, there are three, th- three iterations that um, st- eliminates the bad actors. So the algorithm basically will give you negative scores for countries whose scores are too low. Um, And through three iterations of that is how these countries get excluded from the index.
0: And and what are the the particular reasons for excluding Saudi Arabia? So
1: So Saudi Arabia has uh, very poor human freedom scores uh, on their human freedom side. So they end up Having a score that is lower than average in emerging markets, and so that's basically. What, I mean, there obviously there's there's women's rights issues, there's uh, freedom of the press issues. Um, we saw with the Khashoggi killings recently um, that, or just the the whole situation is extremely dire as far as press freedoms. Um, there's basically monarchy rule, so there's not a lot of checks and balances on the government um they did allow women to drive recently which is great uh my friend majnal al sharif who was like the rosa parks of saudi arabia um who 11 years ago was jailed for driving and basically putting uh filming herself driving and putting it on youtube uh, to kind of start the women to drive movement um she recently did a, a, a Drive for freedom in the United States to bring attention to her friends in the movement who were jailed like right around the time that women started being allowed to drive. So it's not that they were loosening up on women's freedoms. Um, If they were, why would they jail the, 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 the activists who campaigned for women to be able to drive? So there's these four women that are in jail now that are her friends basically arbitrarily because they campaigned for the freedom for women to drive, and now women are allowed to drive, and they're still in jail. And in fact, they were arrested around the time that women started being allowed to drive. So there's still some issues, obviously, in Saudi Arabia that, that we'd like to see improvements on before we can include them into the index. Uh, Saudi Arabia is, is a beautiful, huge country with huge potential, and um, obviously women are a big part of that, and so I hope to see more reform there. Um, I believe Manal wrote the, uh, the Time magazine um, People of the Year article on MBS when he was Time People of the Year last year. Um, she had huge hopes for reform when he came into power, um, and she, she maybe had lost some of that hope now, but I still think there's, there's a lot of potential there. As with China and with all of the emerging markets, I hope they all make it into the index right i I want this alpha to disappear (laughs) well
0: i I agree and i i'm with you there russia is an interesting um an interesting case study too i think because russia is one that appears in there's a lot of value investors who think that russia is unusually undervalued as an index but it's one that you exclude for human rights reasons what 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 are the particular ills of russia
1: yeah. So, so again, I am not excluding well, the methodology them. The does? Score. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so, so yeah. So, so Russia um, has some similar issues. They have elections, but they their elections are there's really no chance for anyone to win other than um, whoever's already in power. Um, I don't I don't want to say too many bad things against autocrats in public, <laughs> but um, but there's obviously some issues there. Um, And if if anyone wants to learn more about, you know, investing in Russia, I would recommend uh, Bill Browder's book, Red Notice. Uh, I, I retweet Bill Browder often. Just this morning, I retweeted him and he had tweeted something about Morgan Stanley is now out of Russia. And I don't know why it took so long. It's an uninvestable country. So just to give you an example, Bill Browder was a hedge fund manager who went to Russia to invest when they were just starting to privatize everything. Um, so there was huge arbitrage opportunities. He made a killing. And then uh, Russia basically, uh, their, their oligarchs somehow stole the tax money that he paid to the government. So they stole from their own government. Um, there's some kind of scheme that his lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, uncovered. And so they ended up torturing and killing Sergei Magnitsky. And um, as a result, Bill Browder gave up his life as an investor, as a professional investor, as a hedge fund manager, and became a human rights activist. Um, And he is speaking uh, in about two weeks from the time of this filming at the Oslo Freedom Forum, and he speaks everywhere uh, on behalf of Sergei Magnitsky and the Magnitsky Act, which uh, basically provides a a form of accountability for human rights abusers around the world. So Russia, I know, is very attractive as far as valuations. we're not a we're not I know, and I know you guys are you are deep value investors, so I don't know if that's attractive to you as well um, but I will quote Bill Browder here when I, when I say you know he says he doesn't invest in emerging markets at all like Russia because there's no no rule of law and you have to have rule of law to have an investable country
0: I agree rule of law incredibly uh, powerful for, necessary for to, to invest in in, in any country um,
1: yeah but that's a good point, and I just want to point out one more thing. Sorry, to please interrupt. Um, a lot. This is this is why like freedom freedom should be a, a um, part of the conversation when it comes to investing, um, especially in emerging markets, be, because there's so much discrepancy in the freedom levels. And so, um, coming from a freer country, we sometimes project our optimism onto these countries because we just have no idea what goes on there. Um, it's incomprehensible to us. So. Um, so, one of our missions is to bring freedom into the conversation as a criteria for evaluating um, emerging markets investments. So that's and that's that that is a perfect example because otherwise, Russia, Turkey, you know, all have very very uh, attractive valuations.
0: Um, let me just play devil's advocate for a moment. You and I had lunch with Larry Swedroe, <laughs> who's the Factor King, uh, and I that's hope right. to have Larry on this show at some stage. And Larry what? said that, and this is this is sort of, uh, this is a truth in a lot of investing, that where the, uh, you're rewarded for taking risks, you're rewarded for taking on, and sort of what deep value investing is, you're taking on the risk that these companies sort of look like they're trending towards zero, and so you're, there should be some premium in the fact that many of these countries that are more difficult to invest in or, uh, you know, uninvestable from various other perspectives look like they're, they're undervalued. But your, your research seems to show something else.
1: Uh, yeah, so, so our, our research does show that freer countries over the long run do have more sustainable returns, and um, the investors in, in those countries get more of those returns. So, for example, in China, we saw a huge run up, you know, in the last 30 years, because they basically went from uh, abysmal policies, right, uh, to just bad policies, but not abysmal. And that has created kind of a, an economic miracle, an illusion of one of sorts. But investors in their stock market got very little of that uh, over the last 30 years. And you've seen, we've seen obviously huge growth there. So, so that's an issue where uh, in the freer countries, investors do capture more of that growth. Um, there is something to be said for risk versus reward. Um, as, far as, as far as that, I would, I would, I would quote uh, Nassim Taleb, where he talks about kind of an absorption barrier risk. I don't know if, if you're familiar with that, or no. I actually didn't read the book. I, I heard a podcast that he did with uh, Econ Talk. Uh, where he talks about absorption barrier risk and that is the risk where uh, it, the risk that completely takes you out. So if you're in a casino it's like if, where you run out of money. Uh, basically it's a risk that you cannot uh, recover from. And so that's the kind of risks that we're avoiding uh, in emerging markets by investing in the freer countries because I mean think about it if you're, if you're like in a very unfree country and then something like the, the government decides to uh, basically, uh, I don't know, uh, blanking on the word here, but the opposite of privatized. Uh,
0: yeah, to, to, to <laughs> take them, it's not to take yeah, them they, public, because that's not the right word, but right, uh, it, to take like them the over.
1: Right. They, basically, they decide the state now owns your company or something like that. Um, and then your investors are screwed. So so that is the, the absorption barrier risks or your lawyer gets killed and tortured, right, like Magnitsky. Those are absorption barrier risks um, that you deal with when you have no rule of law. So we would say that, yeah, I mean, the the rewards should be great for those kinds of risks. Um, So I would actually agree with him. Sometimes, especially in the short term, you're going to see, you know, maybe a slightly lower return. We have very high, you know, we have very low, sorry, low tracking error to the benchmark indices so it doesn't deviate you know quite a lot um so i wouldn't say the risk is is too far off there
0: on uh, on the upside you say that there's a relationship between freedom and human rights and innovation
1: yeah so so freer countries are are basically faster to innovate and so faster to recover from drawdowns or faster to pivot um according to market needs. And sometimes they even benefit from the market trends in unfree countries. So for example, Chile is a very high, uh, they have very high trading uh, with China. So the the very prolific trading partner with China, like they do about 25% of their trade with China. So Chile being one of the freest countries and China being one of the most unfree in the emerging market by these metrics. Uh, Last year, China had uh, kind of a smart car or the electric car revolution that's still going on now where the government is subsidizing a lot of electric car companies manufacturers and so forth there's this huge um, demand now for uh the batteries that go in these cars right the, which are made from lithium um, and so that's an investing trend that you've seen globally is investing in these types of batteries um, and chile historically uh, has been a huge miner of copper so one of their companies that are in our index sqm uh, it's a Chilean mining company and they basically pivoted from mining copper to now mining a lot a lot of lithium. So uh, very and, and they you know their stock price benefited as well. So uh, a lot of these more freer countries can quickly adjust to market trends, uh, even the trends in their trading partners who are less free.
0: Shout out to all, uh, my chileno amigos, my uh, mother-in-law is chileno. <laughs> Really? Uh, yeah.
1: That's awesome. We should go visit, do some, you know. I'd love to. We to go
0: down to uh, Valparaiso and have a look at that gigantic ah, pool.
1: That's awesome. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so uh, you have some very high-profile backers. Uh, who are they, and uh, how did you meet them?
1: Thank you for this question. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, something I am in all of every day. So. So, for example, um, Rob Arnott is my biggest seed investor, and he was my first seed investor. And so, I've been a fan of Rob's since, I guess, when I first like when, when this all first started. And um, he because he was one of the first to do non-market cap weighting indices, right? So, at the time, um, I was actually working at Fidelity um, in Pasadena uh, when I first became aware of Rob's work, and he was on the same street so we were both on South Lake Avenue so there's been times when like on a weekend I would just walk over to his building and be like oh it's the research affiliates building so I literally stalked his building right because I was such a fan of their work Um, and then when I left Fidelity uh, and eventually started this company I called them and I said hey do you guys want to partner on this and they are like please go away right (laughs) I could not get through to Rob there was no chance so um, the first year I, uh, started trying, trying to get an idea of the ETF market and what was going on. I went to obviously ETF.com's inside ETF conference, um, which is the biggest ETF conference, right? So the first place I went to kind of get an idea of a feel of the ecosystem, uh, and there somebody there at this time, there was like an intra-conference tweeting app where you can tweet out stuff to like the other attendees and, uh, somebody tweeted, uh, While they were in a China talk, they were like, I can't believe this guy's talking about China and uh, saying nothing about the one child policy and its impact on, you know, social and and economic impact on on China. And I was like, wow, somebody else knows and cares about the one child policy. So so I tweeted back and we ended up meeting and he is the president of this tiny, like 20 person CFA society in Tennessee. And he's like, hey, come speak for our, you know, 20-person CFA Society. And, you know, I'm just starting out. So I'm like, sure, you know, that'd be awesome. And so I really thank him and I just want to give him a shout out. His name is Ralph Lehman in, in Tennessee there, uh, the CFA Society. and Good work, and, uh, Ralph. Not- yes, thank you, Ralph. So, uh, so he had me speak at Chattanooga and in um, – Knoxville, and after that, uh, they recommended me to just go speak in Tampa, with, which is a much bigger society for their forecast dinner, which, as you know, is like the biggest event of the year. So I was on the forecast dinner panel. This is my first year doing this. I barely had, you know, everything figured out, and uh, just had no idea what was going on. Um, and I was on the panel with BlackRock, Morningstar, and this guy named David Kotak, who uh, was like in the business for like, you know, long, long time. And so. Uh, so after the panel, David Kotak invites me to this thing he he hosts called Camp Kotak. And this is basically 30 economists or, or sorry, 50 economists and like financial people who fish for three days in a remote part of Maine, like almost in Canada, um, with no Wi-Fi. Now there's Wi-Fi, but at this time there was no Wi-Fi. Do, do
0: you so, fish Perth?
1: I I don't actually fish. (laughs) So when I got this invitation, I was like, who does this? And so, uh, but, you know, my friends were like, you should go. Like, these are really cool, you know, people. And like David Kotak is super cool. So I did go. And you have to take a very small seaplane to get into the campsite. You can't get there. Or the other way to get there is by car. You drive two and a half hours from the Bangor Airport. And so I, at first, was planning to drive. But I had some meetings like before hitting the camp that uh, I was tired. And so I was like, oh, you know, I'm just going to take a, a seaplane if it's still available. So I called, I was flying from LaGuardia to Bangor. I called on my way to LaGuardia at the seaplane company and I was like, hey, uh, is it too late to get a seaplane? And they were like, no, you know, you can share with Rob or not. And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, so I literally shared a seaplane. It's a two seater, right? So the only two people, I shared a seat plane with Rob Arnott. They were like, yeah, just intercept him at the Bangor airport. Here's his, yes. you know, flight number. I was like, so I, so I literally intercept Rob not at the airport. I'm like, hey, did they tell you we were riding together? <laughs> and Rob was like, yeah. <laughs> so, so that's how I met him, and he ended up being super cool. Um, we fished together, all of us, for three days. And he, after the camp, um, did a call with me and a, a potential client. And um, after that, he said, I'll invest. You know, and so he became the first investor. His investment uh, from that time to now has grown. And I'm just so thankful for that. See, And he doesn't actually go every year. So when I tell you the story, sometimes I leave this part out. He doesn't go to this camp every. That was my first year. But he was only there that year. And he's never gone again since. He was only that year um, to pay a bet that he lost to Barry Redholtz. Huh. So he had lost. I don't know if I should be even telling this. He had lost yeah, tell a, a bet. bet to Barry Redholtz. Uh, I believe the bet was uh, that Hillary Clinton would be the Democratic nominee. So Barry won the bet. And he brought $10,000 in cash wrapped uh, like a brick and presented it to Barry at dinner. (laughs) So, So that's the only reason that he was there. So I have a lot of people to thank for this. This is not something I could have orchestrated. I thank Barry for winning the bet. Ralph for, you know, leading the way with the, the CFA introductions uh, that led to, to Camp Kotak, obviously David Kotak. I mean, just the people that, you know, that that um, have resonated with this idea along the way blows me away every day. And that's just one story. Um, I met Steve Cuchero also at an Inside ETFs one year, uh, and he's now a supporter. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're tactical, so so when they're long, you know he he, he he's he's with us. Uh, and Steve Cuchero is obviously he he's the founding father of ETF strategists, right? He's the one that sold Windhaven to Schwab, and uh, now he has his own own firm, Three Edge. Um, I mean, just amazing the people that that have. Re- oh, my uh, lead market maker Reggie Brown. Thank you, Reggie. You know he so funny story about Reggie Brown. So he was one of the first people that I I made a point to meet at the first ETF conference, because uh, the month that I left Fidelity was April of 2014. And that's when Reggie Brown was on the cover of Bloomberg Markets Magazine as Mr. ETF. So I don't know if you remember this cover, but it was just like his (laughs) face, and it said Mr. ETF. uh, obviously I was like oh this is really cool like who is this guy so that's that's first time I read about Reggie and um, made a point to meet him.
0: Reggie's the, the godfather of ETFs right that's the yeah <laughs> that's how Reggie's so, described.
1: Yes so so I'm just honored and obviously Wes and the team at Alpha Architect uh, funny story about meeting them too I actually asked them to partner with me uh, a year before they actually came up with the idea of partnering together so uh, that conversation happened twice. The first time was my idea. The second time was Wes's idea. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh,
0: so yeah. So you, you have this uh, serendipitous flight with Rob Arnott, and you manage to in the in the time that you're on the plane, you manage to pitch him and get him uh, persuaded. But sort of it illustrates uh, one of the just the the uh, the things about starting a a, a business launching a business that you kind of have to be hustling. And I think you're, you're an incredible hustler, networker, <laughs> but h- how do you, I mean, you're, you're one of the very few women in this industry who, and you're sort of, you're the founder and face of this. How do you, how do you find it negotiating with, um, you know, negotiating with lots of different people who are mostly men and pitching your idea, which I think is very compelling, but what's your experience doing that? I'm
1: actually a horrible negotiator. And just to correct you, I didn't pitch Rob Arnott um, on the plane. <laughs> you didn't. That was a very it was like a twenty-minute ride. Oh, okay. It took quite a bit longer. Uh, but he did resonate with it right away, uh, like at camp. Um, so I, I I could tell that you know he was resonating with the idea, and he ended up you know deciding to invest over over time. Um, so so it wasn't like a that that fast. But um, but I, I'm grateful and uh, as far as negotiating, I, I'm really bad at it. Uh, you know, it took me a long time to do this. You know, we, we've had the index live for years now. And, uh, there's been times when I almost, uh, almost went into a partnership with an issuer or, you know, several times like that. And, uh, something fell through either. I negotiated terribly or, uh, we came to a deal and they backed out, you know, or, you know, just a lot of this has happened. And I think that, um, uh, you know, we, and we just talked about this morning how nerve wracking it is to actually be at this point, right? So uh, it, it's super fun being an entrepreneur, but it's also like super scary. And so, uh, but I think a couple of things uh, help me get through this. So, so one is I really feel called to do this. I really feel that there should be a freedom weighted um, index, Especially in emerging markets, and also in other other, other parts of, of the world. But um, I had a lot of confirmation in the beginning that this was something that needed to happen. So, um, so when when things didn't go well, or you know, it, and it was super sad, you know, some of those times when like a partner would, would back out or something like that, um, you know, it, it it I I knew that enough things that happened um as you call serendipitously what it, or um what I call something that was orchestrated in a way that I could not have done um that I knew that that I could could go on right so um so I so I didn't give up and uh, the other thing that helps me a lot is people like you like other people who are doing the same thing and you're and you're both scared you know and so it's like somebody else is, is going through the same and, and you see the genius of these other people, like like you and Wes and these people. I'm like, how, like, how am I in this group? Like, you know, cause you guys are so awesome. And, and, and uh. the hustle, like you guys, especially, you know, Phil, you've had him on your show, Phil Bach, like that guy can hustle, you know? So it's just like these people that just have so much fun with this whole experience of entrepreneurship, this whole experience of, um, being in indexing and ETFs which is an extremely fun group and so so that also keeps me going so thank you for that.
0: <laughs> uh, likewise Perth it's it's always it's always a pleasure running into you uh, and and, <laughs> and talking to you on Twitter too. Um,
1: oh yeah well, Twitter also
0: helps. So uh, you're you're uh, you may be you may be not allowed to say this but I, I your Alpha Architect are going to be providing your your the underlying ETF you you provide the index the underlying ETF and the ticker again is F R D M. I have to be very careful about the way that I pronounce that because Australians like slur through our words. So I, I always do the American pronunciation for the R, which I know gets me a lot of uh, grief back home. But I, F-R-D-M, Freedom is the ticker. Um, one of the things that we, we when we first met, I didn't quite realise that it was that it was a, an emerging market focus for your first fund, and so I was just sort of uh, we discussed and something that I'm very interested in what. Which are the freest countries in the world?
1: Yeah, so some of the Nordic countries are very free. Um, Hong Kong and Singapore are considered very free. So Hong Kong, Singapore, Hong Kong, Norway, Hong Kong. Yeah, because historically, this remember there's a there's a slight time lag in the data. So Hong Kong is still considered. Uh, very free by especially economic freedom standards. They're number one as far as economic freedom in the world, um, tied with Singapore. Uh, we are expecting to see that come down um, as China gains influence um, in the region. But um, as far as economic freedoms, they're still the highest out there.
0: And where does the U.S. rank? Uh,
1: I'll have to look that up, but I believe it's I believe it's somewhere around 18. Let me let me look it up. Well, I
0: I looked it I looked it up I looked it up this morning and, okay. and, I, and I, oh I saw your tweet about it.
1: 18...
0: Me though. <laughs> no 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 not, well, a little bit. I so want to look
1: at emerging markets. You've got to give me
0: the top 100 from one to 100. Go. No, I wouldn't do that to you. Exactly. So what no, do you know the reasons why? So why is why is America at 18 and not sort of say closer to the very top? Yeah. So so one
1: of the things that I've heard from the from the people that compiled this index. Who are great, um, and is that the war on drugs and the war on terror kind of caused our scores to go down? So in the last uh, recent years, so so a lot of government spending and uh, interference and, and things like that. Um, that's why that's what I heard.
0: And because ten percent of my listeners are Australian, where does Australia rank? Do you know?
1: Very high it's very high. <laughs> no,
0: no war on no, no drugs exact, or terrorism.
1: Why don't you tell me since you looked it up? But it is very high.
0: <laughs> well, I I'm, I'm I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. yeah uh, I'm
1: going to actually look it up right now since you since you're testing me and I'm curious where Austria is. I know it's extremely high. So I can't actually see the screen right now. Don't do anything weird. <laughs> if anyone else wants to look this up, it's if you go to there's a couple ways, but, you know, this is done by Fraser, Cato, and Friedrich-Nelman. So if you go to any of those, you can find it. And right now I am going to Cato, and I'm just pulling the, the data, and then I will rank uh, as far as countries. Okay, so Australia, is have a, they have a human freedom score, uh, which is the composite score, 8.58 out of 10 their rank is four.
0: <laughs> For human freedom.
1: Number four. <laughs> so extremely free.
0: And so who's, who's one, two, three? New Zealand, would ask. Chile.
1: No, Chile is not. Chile is uh, below Australia. This is, this is a whole 160 countries. So I'm going to just sort by rank. New Zealand, Hong Kong, Switzerland. Australia.
0: Well, that's 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 a good outcome. <laughs> Behind New Zealand. So shout out to my Kiwi buddies. You'll be able to like remind me of that one next time we see each other. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's probably based on how you play rugby, which unfortunately yeah. <laughs> Australia's not doing well there.
1: No, this is the this is the composite score. So this includes human freedom and economic freedom. If you look at just economic freedom, Hong Kong is number one.
0: Good sevens rugby there too. Yeah. <laughs> so th- thanks very much for that, Perth. That's very interesting. If um, When when someone's thinking about using your index or the ETF, what's, what's the use case or how, how should they be thinking about it?
1: Yeah, so I'll just share how people are using it that I know of. Um, so our first investors are basically using it as a uh, complement to their current emerging markets holdings. So uh, just to get an, a different exposure to to you know different emerging markets than they currently have, so it's a very good complement because of the kind of you know we have some high allocations to freer countries that the benchmark indices have very low allocations in, and we have no allocation in certain countries that they have high allocation, and so it's a very good complement to the, those types of um, existing emerging market strategies. I do, you know, I, I use it exclusively for my emerging markets um, allocation, but I don't expect, you know, anyone else to have that kind of dedication at the beginning stage of, um, of the strategy. So, so most of the people that I know that are using it are using it as a complement to their existing um, emerging markets holdings.
0: But you said it also tracks reasonably closely to to the benchmark, what is what is the benchmark for emerging markets?
1: I use the MSCI Emerging Markets Index. Some people could also use FTSE. The only difference there is FTSE has more A shares, and they have no South Korea. So, and then MSCI has South Korea and um, are adding A shares now.
0: Does uh, does uh? <clears throat> excuse me. Does FTSE treat uh, South Korea as a developed market, or yes. dev- that that's why it's not included? I see. Yeah. So it's it's that's an interesting idea that you get you get little tracking error even though you've got quite a different allocation
1: yeah no that's a happy accident actually i like that about um about the outcome um and that's just because it just so happens that taiwan and south korea are highly free markets and are always like in the top 4 um uh, country allocations yeah so so they they're you know highly correlated to china and they get a a very high, um, you know, allocation in the index, so kind of a good, good proxy, I guess, for China without being invested in, um, in China itself. And, and the reason why, so, so, you know, for me, I like work with human rights activists a lot. I see a lot of, you know, human rights issues in China. Like right now, we see the Xinjiang issue, um, what, what's happening with religious freedom, uh, what's happening with press freedoms. Um, and basically, any treatment of any uh, any human rights activism or, um, I guess, people that criticize the government. Um, so so you know, but you don't see anyone around the world talking about this, right? You don't see governments talking about it. You see what's happening in Hong Kong as well and the new extradition laws that may come into place, and uh, people getting kidnapped for selling books about uh, you know politicians. Uh, you know, it, from different countries. And, you know, so so a lot of these things that go on that are very obviously going on, that no one disputes, no one is talking about. So in the trade deal between U.S. and China, did human rights come up once? I doubt it, you know. Uh, did, does it come up from, from the U.K. as far as what's going on in Hong Kong with all that the U.K. has invested in Hong Kong over the years? No, n- never comes up. Why? Because of the economic clout that China has. And, the, and, and what China needs more of is more foreign investment and they'll have even more economic clout, right? So we've given them a lot of foreign investment already and that has um, given them, you know, this kind of almost immunity from anything that they want to do as far as human rights because nobody will ever mention it because of the, if they want to do business in the country. And in fact, I don't know if, uh, if you saw this article, MSCI, when they started adding A shares, First of all, in 2015, when China um, had that huge stock market collapse, one of the people they blamed was MSEI. They were like, because you didn't add us, right, you didn't add A shares, you know, we had this huge drawdown, this crash, it was your fault or whatever. They blamed a lot of people MSEI was one of them. But now they have, a story came out in Wall Street Journal uh, by Mike Bird that they actually pressured MSEI to add A shares. So this is this is obviously not something to to knock on MSCI. China does this with everyone. So um, so but yeah. So that's another reason why I feel um, in my investing I don't want to be supporting the uh, immunity of regimes that commit human rights abuses with my investment dollars. Um, and hopefully there's others who feel the same way and maybe some institutions who you know who do as well, though it's harder, I think, for institutions to take that stand because a lot of them do get funding from these countries.
0: One of the rights that I saw, uh, which I thought was a little unusual and I, it hadn't occurred to me, was um, parental rights. So why include parental rights in your definition of human rights?
1: That is an excellent question. Thank you. <laughs> so to give you an example, um, and parental rights is basically what rights a parent has to a child um, after divorce, or even during uh, a marriage. Um, and this is a, one of the five proxies for women's rights that are used in this index. The, the other proxies include missing women, which we talked about, um, and inheritance rights. Um, so, so parental rights, to give you an example, again, using my friend's uh, story, Manal al-Sharif um, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, her first marriage in Saudi Arabia, she ended up getting a divorce uh, and she has basically now no rights to her her child that she had in that marriage. So her first son is still in Saudi Arabia, even though she has been uh, self-exiled to Australia. So she's in Australia now with her second son from a second marriage. But the two sons have never met because one of them is not allowed to go into the country and the other one is not allowed to come out. That's kind of one example of what could happen. But basically parental rights is... If a woman decides to leave a marriage, does she have any rights to her children? And so that obviously is a is a huge thing for um, women's rights in a country because a lot of there's a lot of mothers who would stay in a, a terrible situation to stay with their children. So, um, so that that's why that's why that's in there.
0: It's unimaginable. It's uh, if you've got kids to be to be separated from them.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know that as a dad. I don't know if I'm biased, but I think as a mom, it's possibly worse.
0: <laughs> possibly,
1: so, yeah. So we do use that as a, and, and typically in these like uh, very repressive regimes, it's obviously the the woman who loses out if if she leaves. So that's a it's a proxy for women's rights. Excellent question. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: if folks want to get in contact with you, what's the best way to do that?
1: So the the website is lifeandlibertyindexes.com. And you can get a lot of information there. Uh, my, I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. My Twitter handle is Perth underscore Toll,
0: which is T O L L E.
1: Yes, Perth, and, like Australia. And, and
0: then, yeah, why why are you Perth?
1: Oh, my my dad. Uh, my dad went there. Uh, he he did translation work in Australia before I was born. Uh, I actually didn't didn't talk with him. My dad like growing up like. He wasn't there growing up but eventually when i met him i found out that he had never actually been there i thought i always thought that he'd been there he never went there he just heard about it like he was in australia he liked it and then somebody told him about perth
0: that's a good enough yeah. reason <laughs> and uh the 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 ticker for the index is frdm and it's also the same ticker for the etf that tracks it which is you're assisted there by alpha architect uh It's incredibly inspiring, Perth, and I think you're incredibly courageous, not only because uh, you're launching an ETF almost single-handedly, but also because you're shining a light on some of these autocratic regimes around the world. I really do wish you the very best of luck in the launch.
1: Thank you so much. I couldn't do any of this without the support of all our partners and people like you, so definitely not doing it alone. I thank you for that.
0: My pleasure. Thanks, Perth.